All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Genesis chapter 1. It's also printed in your bulletin. However, the one that's in your bulletin is highly edited, uh, and I will explain why it's that way, but you can follow that one, or you can look in your Bible, or just listen. It would be okay if you listen. I'm going to start reading. We're talking about the book of Genesis and creation and all this, and I want to spend a few minutes with this. Starting in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good, And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now look at chapter 2, first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on that day He rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Amen. This is the Word of God, the Word of the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about this part of Genesis. There's not very many places in the Bible that are quite as controversial as the first and second chapter of Genesis, third chapter of Genesis. Uh, Maybe the book of Revelation, which we just spent six months in, uh, but certainly these first three chapters of Genesis are controversial. And I think it's because over the history of... uh, uh, literature and the church and the old world and the new world and modernism and all of that, the book of Genesis has been questioned and it's been generally put into four uh, categories. I told you about this last week. One is myth. Is the story mythological? And I said to you, no, it's not mythological insofar as it is telling an untruth or a fable or something that's fanciful. It is not a myth. In respect to that. The second category, is it science? Is it teaching us how uh, God created the world? And I explained last week that it is not telling us how. It is telling us why. Uh, It's telling us who. It's telling us that 
the world was created. But there's not a single scientific expression in all of these first three chapters. There's just not. And so, one of the challenges with reading the Old Testament and even the New Testament is that it requires that we, in the 20th century, 21st century, 22nd, it doesn't matter when, it requires the readers in the modern times to go back into that world and read it like they would have read it. It is not fair. In fact, it is absolutely terrible to take the Bible and, and bring it forward into the 20th or 21st century and ask it to answer questions that it was not written to answer. And so you have all these debates about evolution and creationism, young earth, earth, old earth, and they are absolutely waste of time because it is the height of arrogance for us to think that Moses and his companions were writing a text that would answer 20th and 21st century questions that Charles Darwin and his crowd uh, came up with. It's arrogance. Same thing with the book of Revelation. I explained to you, we think it's all about us. And the book of Revelation is not all about us. It's about them back in that first century who were facing Roman persecution. And it has tons of direct application to us now because that same world is going on. So it's not about science, not about scientific explanations. And if you take it and make it that, you are doing harm to the text. You're misusing the text. Is it history? No, it is not history in the modern sense of historical reporting. It is history in that it is telling the truth and it is accurate and they were real people, real flesh and blood, real events in time and space. It is not a fantasy. It's not allegory. It's not imagination. But it's not modern historical reporting and so you can't approach it and say okay this happened then this happened then this happened sometimes you can sometimes you can't finally is it theology well of course it's talking about God so it is theological it is historical there is some vague scientific I mean we're talking about material things but it's not about how they were made we're talking about biology human beings but not how they were made so it does include some of these things but it's much more than just theology it's that plus something and so uh, one scholar said this and and I, I think I shared this with you last week a careful textual analysis of Genesis and beyond, but particularly in Genesis, shows that it's a very it's problematic to assign uh, Genesis one, particularly the prologue, which we're talking about this morning, to any one of those particular genre. It is utterly unique. How do we know that it's unique? Well, one thing that I want to, and please don't, I hope this is not tedious to you, but I hope it will explain a couple things without getting into too much detail. When you read ancient literature, whether it's Hebrew or Greek or Ugaritic or uh, uh, Sumerian or any of these other ancient languages, you, you know, you look at them and they're, they're written, some of them 3,000 years ago, or the hieroglyphics that are, that are in Egypt. 
they were, they were written in a time and place that is utterly different than the modern world. And so they used things and ways of communicating that are not like what we have. They didn't have punctuation. They didn't use commas. They didn't use exclamation points. They didn't use these type of things. In fact, if you look at an ancient Greek manuscript of the New Testament, sometimes it's just all capitals, right, Jeff? I mean, just letters, in line, there's not even spaces sometimes between the words. You've got to go in and really look. I mean, it's just letters. And you've got to pick the words out. And then you've got to put them together. It's, it, it's a whole science in and of itself. And Hebrew is worse. Very difficult. But scholars have found a, a, the way to do this and how to interpret not only these languages but others. But in Hebrew literature, listen, I, I won't spend a lot of time, but listen carefully so that you can appreciate the beauty and the glory and the majesty of these stories instead of reducing them into explanations about Darwinism or not. They're not about that. There are, in Hebrew, there are at least 12 levels of signification. What I mean by that is they start with sounds. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. The way that they're said, the way that they sound. Then they're put into syllables. Eloi, Elohim. You know, they're put into syllables. Then words. Then phrases. You see where I'm going. There's 12 levels of this all the way up to the whole book, the way the whole book is written. Then there are repetitions. Highly artistic repetitions. Then there are patterns that you look for with the clauses and the phrases. And if you take a scroll, a Torah, and you open it, it's just written like this. But if you actually look at the letters, sometimes they all start with the same letter or different letters. Or sometimes they're arranged in a pattern like a chiasm where there's stuff up here and stuff down here and then there's a main point in the middle. Modern language doesn't do that. But every part of that is conveying meaning. It's not just the words, like in, uh, you know, we read a, a, the Bible in English and you're just looking at the words. But if you listen carefully, you will actually see it in the English Bible too. And I can show you places where, they, where it actually comes out in the English as well. And translators, if you look at Psalms, they try to figure, figure this stuff out. So very quickly, there's these levels of of signification and patterns and arrangements that are highly significant. And Genesis chapter 1 is full of them. And that's why I did that highly edited text to show you there is repetition, there is a cadence, there is a rhythm that is built into the book of, Revel uh, book of Genesis, particularly in the prologue, that makes it not strictly a poem... But it's not strictly prose either. It's a hymn. And there is repetition and repetition and cadence and rhythm. My son, my older son Justin, graduated from Redeemer Seminary and he's very good in Hebrew. In fact, he, got, he caught it right away and he started teaching. He was on the staff teaching the first three modules of Hebrew. They have four modules. And Justin, my son, taught the first three for Dr. Gropp. And Justin had to memorize the entire first chapter of Genesis in Hebrew and then speak it. And the way that it comes out is in a chant. It is ama it's, it's, it's amazing how beautiful it is 
when they know how to speak it. And you can get online, you can find it and listen to it. It's really quite, quite lovely. There's pattern, there's structure. And all of that implies meaning. So let me, give the, let me give you a few things very quickly, and I hope this will help you. The prologue tells us, and the prologue being 1 through 2, verse 3. That's the prologue. Then it starts the actual narrative of Genesis. The prologue tells us who God is and how he relates to creation and humanity in particular. Those are the questions the text is answering. So let's focus on that. Let's take it as it is. Let's not say it's talking about evolution, 24-hour days, creation, not, you know, how, how was it done, the mechanics, because it's just simply not answering those questions. But it is telling us who God is, and it's telling us how he relates to the world he made. That we can be sure of. The prologue and the book of Genesis in general is a key to the interpretation, perhaps, of the entire Bible. You know, we spent a whole semester in our, our adult theology class, Sunday school at 9 o'clock. Many of you were in there. We spent the whole time in Genesis 1 through 3. And all I did was show our class how the, how the first three chapters of Genesis touch every single other part of the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation. The prologue is more than a statement of theology. It's not just theology, it's more than that. It's a hymn of praise to the Creator, listen, for whom, through whom and for whom all things exist. That's what it's there for. Let's not make it something it's not. Let's let it speak to us as it is on its own terms. And then I think you will see the beauty of the book of Genesis and the prologue. And you'll be able to talk to your friends about it without getting into all the mess of, well, you know, does this mean 24 hours or the evening and morning 24 hours? It's a poetic device of beauty and aesthetics. It is not saying anything about hours or minutes or days. We'll look at that. Look at verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, look at the repetition. And I gave you this in your sheet so that you can see it for yourself. God created. Elohim barach. He, he, he did something that only God does. The word barach, only God creates in this particular way. He creates the heavens and the earth. This is a word. When those two are combined, it means the cosmos. Everything that is. The earth was out f- without form and void. Now that it's not attached to heaven, he's talking about the planet. It is what I told you, a very famous phrase, tohu vabohu. It is empty and formless. Formless and empty. That is key. Listen, empty and without any form. It's in a negative state. Darkness, look at the phrase, over the face of the deep, Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So the planet, the cosmos as it is, this part of the cosmos, this planet, was not evil, but it was uninhabitable. It was not productive. There were characteristics that were not in line with what God wanted. He wanted this place to be productive and filled with beauty, with order, and so he prepares it. He is hovering as a, as a mother bird, I told you, or an eagle that is over the, the nest, fluffing the, you know, to, to fluff up the nest and get it ready for laying the eggs or taking care of her young. 
He's hovering, and then comes these six commands. And they're highly repetitious. Look at the first one, verses 3 through 5. God said, let there be light. Look at the repetition. Said, let there be. There was light. He saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and darkness night. Do not think that day and night are are the revolutions of the sun. He's talking about the cosmos. And as I told our class this morning, light is something. You all know this, right? They're not sure, scientists are not sure if it's, it's a wave or a particle, but light is something. It's a substance. But what is darkness? It's nothing. You can't weigh darkness, you can't measure it. Don't say, well, dark matter. Dark matter is just something that's dark. But darkness, as it's used here, the context is saying it's just nothing. And God creates the light. He creates a habitation for what He will then place into that smaller lights to rule the day and the night and stars. Almost an afterthought. It's kind of cool the way he says it. He's creating form. Remember, formless? He's creating form so that he can then fill. Remember, empty? Formless and void, formless and empty. Now he's forming and he's filling. Day two, let there be an expanse. This is the sky. In the ancient Near East cosmology, they believed that, the, that there was a hard surface, like this ceiling. There was a hard surface over the earth. They didn't think in terms of a sphere. They thought in terms of a dome. And that hard surface separated water above from water below. Ocean, sea, rivers, that kind of water. Now why would they think that there was water up there. Well, it's blue, like water. Remember, this is phenomenological language. This is being written from Moses' point of view. He's looking up. He's not in outer space on a spaceship and, you know, with all the scientific information. He's explaining the cosmology of the world so that people could understand it. And there's sky. So, day two, he creates sky. Light, day one. Sky, day two. Look at six through eight. Let there be an expanse to separate waters from waters. Now he's talking about dry land. So he creates light, then he creates sky, then he creates dry land. And then look at verses 14. This is day four. Let there be lights, smaller, larger, one to rule the day, one to rule the night, and the stars. So he takes light and he fills it with more lights. And these become the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's very interesting. I think you already know this, but I'll I'll remind you. Almost every culture that we know of in the history of the world, what did they think of the sun, the moon, and the stars? They think they're gods and they worship them. Almost every culture worships, as Romans 1 says, the creature rather than the creator who Paul says is blessed forever. 
Moses is doing something highly uh, aggressive to the worldview of the ancient Near East. He's saying to them, my God, our God, the God of Israel is the one who created your gods. If you think they're gods, really they're just planets, they're just stars, they're just moon, sun, moon. They're merely things. It was unheard of and unknown and beautiful. Then on day five, he says, let the waters, now look where he is. He's in the sky and the sea. He puts fish, sea creatures, and birds. And all of you know that uh, uh, the Egyptians in particular worshipped Leviathan and they worshipped the behemoth, these great mythical monster creatures, dragons that lived in the sea and lived on the land. Uh, they, they, had, uh, they, they, were, uh, they worshipped uh, herons and storks and other animals. They even mixed them with human beings so that they could come up with more gods. But they were doing something. And so Moses said, not only did he create the sun and the moon and the stars that you all, that you dummies worship, but he also created all these other things that you guys worship. And they're nothing but animals, by the way. And then he says, let the earth bring forth. Now he's, and he talks about the, the uh, vegetation. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Let us make man in our image. Now he's talking about the beasts on the sixth day and human beings. The earth brings forth. But the way he puts the creation of man is he uses the word made and bara. He uses the word hasa and bara, those two words that mean made or created, for man. He is doing something so outrageous that it shook the world to this day because there was no ancient Near East cosmology that had anything like this where God created them for goodness, for love, for glory, for, to share in His creation. All of the ancient Near East cosmologies had the gods creating people to be slaves, to do their work for them, to feed them, and to do their menial work. And the only ones in all of humanity that were even close to being gods were maybe the kings. And that was only if they liked that king. If they didn't like that king, they would make him a slave too. And Moses steps into this world, unbelievable, and he says, in the beginning God created this and He made man in His image, male and female, He created them. Adam, male and female. Mankind in his image. Not just man, man and woman. Unbelievable and remarkable. So the three days of forming, the first three days, are then filled by three days of filling. Now you don't have to accept this. You can go with uh, a chronology, one day following the other, 24 hours and all that. It's okay. But that's not what the text says. You can do what you want with it. But the text is speaking about something more than how it's telling you why. And the why is this, folks. Listen carefully, and then I'm going to finish 
quickly today. On day seven, he rested. Look at the verses two. I printed all those in your bulletin. Heaven and earth is finished. Look at all the repetition. Seventh day, he talks about it three times. Finished twice. Rested. Blessed. Made it holy. He rested. The pattern of creation breaks. And notice, it is obvious what is missing. What's missing? No evening and morning the seventh day. In other words, the whole purpose for this creation, this goes right to the heart of who we are, folks, as human beings. We were meant, our very, the very core meaning of what it is to be a human being is to be working with a God who works. Not who creates slaves to work, but a God who is filling the earth with good, with benevolence, with beauty, with glory, with aesthetic beauty. And He has called us to enter that same creative enterprise of working, building, pushing back the tohu v'bohu, pushing back the, the abyss, the darkness, the night, moving it back and extending the Garden of Eden to where? The land of Eden. And land of Eden to where? The rest of the earth. He's very clear. Go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Take my image, my glory, my beauty, my aesthetics, and move it out beyond just here. And look at the the repetition is, is clear very quickly. God created, He said, He separates, He called, He saw it was good. Evening and morning, first day. Evening and morning, second day. 35 times, I told you last week, in 34 verses, God is the subject of these, just this prologue. Not forces of nature. Not cre- it's not how it was created, it's who created it. And how did He do it? You want to know how, it only tells us this. He said it, and it was so. You know, every god in the ancient Near East pantheons had to go get stuff and then manipulate it with magic and other ways in order to make it into something. This God, the God of Israel, like a great king, speak and it became. His word, think about this, is creative, not just making something uh, happen, it actually makes it first. Then everything happens. Now that is incredible power. It's power that you and I will never fully understand. I think when we get to heaven and we ask God, hey God, tell me, how, how did you do that? You know what he's going to do? He's going to pat you on the head and say, come here and let me hug you. Or like, you know, God, tell me why you chose me. Why did you elect me? Did you see that down there I was going to be such the great guy I am and, and have this great hair and, and this beard and, you know, be the wonderful preacher the world doesn't even recognize? They don't even know I'm here. And he's going to pat me on the head and say, you know, the reason I chose you is because 
You never would have made it otherwise. I had to. I had to love you first. Now, don't you like that? I mean, doesn't that just thrill your soul to know that God is that God and not a figment of your imagination, somebody that kind of fits into your little ways of thinking and my little ways of thinking? Blows our mind. He's relational. This tells us He's relational. This tells us He is good. He is benevolent. He loves aesthetic beauty. Like I told you last week, a chimpanzee may take a reed or, a, or a, a, a frond from a palm and stick it down a termite hole and use it like a tool and pull it out and lick the termites off the reed. But he doesn't weave it into a hat. He doesn't make it into a basket. We do things that no, no one else does. We create stories and art and beauty. We use the image that God placed in us to reproduce more of Him in the world around us. This gives meaning to your work. This means you don't have to find another job to be happy. Maybe you you want to, that's fine. Maybe you want to live somewhere else than El Paso. Look, you don't have to. I'm begging you. Don't go. Don't be discontent. Be content because God has given you everything you need to be happy. Sure, you can look for a better job. Sure, you can get better education and more money and all. I'll find, but don't let those things define you. He gives provision. He puts them in a garden for goodness sakes and He gives them food, light, the ability to procreate. You know, one seed produces what? You all know that I have the fig tree that Jesus cursed in my backyard, right? I've told you that before. I have that fig tree. And for 12 years, my wife and I have poured over that fig tree. We've prayed over it. We've talked to it. We've fed it. We've done all these things. Nothing. The other day I'm out there and guess what? I got figs, baby. Lots of them. One little fig seed, and all of a sudden I have millions of seeds and figs. And that. See what it is? Abundance, procreativity, the ability to be glorious and share in the glory of God. The ancient Near East did not have a cosmology like that. You were nothing. You were a slave to the gods. Amazing. There was a basic rhythm, and this is why evening and morning, the first day, why it's phrased like that, because the Sabbath started when? Not in the morning, it started in the evening, and it ran through the night till the next sundown. It was from sundown to sundown, and this became the pattern of life for you and me. Not how we keep the Sabbath, Not how, whether it's Saturday or Sunday or all, it's not about that. It's about the fact that there's got to be a place in your life where you stop acquiring things and you rest. And you worship. And you recreate. And you enjoy the wonderful world that you're not just grindstone, the nose to the grindstone day and night. And he separates He doesn't eliminate evil. He just moves it out of the way and gives us dominion over it. It's amazing what He does. 
And so we become stewards of creation. We'll look at this in a few, we don't have time this morning. But we become stewards of creation, sharing in His glory, sharing in His plan, sharing in this creation. And it is not something, we're not going to leave the earth and go spend eternity in heaven. We're going to go to heaven when we die, to be sure. But we are coming back here at the second coming of Christ. And He is coming with us. And there will be a new Jerusalem. A new creation. All of the balance of Scripture is about this tragic fall from this purpose. Why our original parents did it, I don't know. And why I continue it, I don't know. I feel Romans chapter 7 every day of my life. I, there's things I want to do, but I don't do them. And there's things I, don't, I shouldn't do, and I do them, those things. And all of us feel that pressure, that strain. But He has empowered us with the Spirit and His Word. I've pled with you all over the years, if you're not spending at least some time every day in your Bible reading your Scriptures, it could be five or ten minutes, but if you're not doing that, expect to starve to death. Expect to wither and die. Spend a few minutes reading your Scriptures, praying through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be forever. You know that the the Lord's Prayer, the greatest prayer ever written, is 31 seconds long. And that's if you pray it slow and contemplatively. And some days that's all I have time for. I pray the Lord's Prayer and that's about as far as I can get. So what do we do with this? How do you really take your life and, and, and get everything out of it that God wants you to have? And everyone in this room knows there's something wrong. We know there's something wrong with creation. We know there's something wrong with us. We struggle with it every day. And it's called sin. And it's called transgression. It's called evil. You know, when somebody sins, they say, well, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. You sinned. It's not a mistake. It's not just an error that you kind of slipped over here. No, you really did something that has a death penalty attached to it. What do we do with that? How can we move out into this world of sin and brokenness and heartache and sadness? How can you do that and and actually produce the image of God in the world around you? And this is what is so thrilling. Listen, look... Look at your page, verse 4 and 5. This is the prologue. This is the very beginning of Genesis, and he says this. He separated light from darkness, and the darkness he called night. Now listen to me. If this doesn't thrill you, I give up. That's in the first couple verses of the Bible. Actually, it's the first day one. Guess what is the last verse in your Bible? Revelation 22, 4 and 5. Don't turn there, just listen. Revelation 22, 4 and 5. It's the last two verses in the book of your Bible, except for the epilogue. There's a few verses after that that's an epilogue. But the the last two verses in Revelation, listen. They 
will see his face. There, his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. The Lord God will be their light. Do you see what he has done? From beginning, Genesis 1, to Revelation 22, he has told us, I will come. I will come for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the Apostle Paul said. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven above and on the earth beneath. He created all things through Jesus and for Jesus. In Him is all the fullness of the Godhead pleased to dwell. And through Him, listen, to reconcile the world, whether in heaven above or on the earth beneath, to reconcile all things to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross. Jesus Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the one who goes into the darkness into the abyss, into the deep, into the Tohu so that you and I can live out here in His light for Him all the days of our life. He is the light, John said, and the light was the light, was the life of men, men and women. It's our life, Jesus, our life. The book of Genesis is magnificent in its message. Its message is, yes, there's chaos. Yes, there's darkness. Yes, you will suffer. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Will you trust him? That's what he's asking for us to trust him. I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to get our head around all of this, but we know that you created a glorious world, a world that was good and very good. And through our foolishness and our idolatry, we spoiled it. But you sent your Son, your only Son, the light of the world, so that darkness could be crushed completely and forever, and we could live in the light, an eternal light, you, yourself. And you'll light the heavens and the earth for all eternity. He will be our light. His name will be on our foreheads. And we love you and we thank you for that. We will never get over the glory that we are able to share with you. Father, I pray that you will reach into the hearts of everyone here this morning and transform us so that we see that our lives are much more than the the petty day-to-day grind that so many of us feel. Help us to rise up and trust you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.